0: Wine Thieves Season 2, Episode 9, Australia's expanding range of refreshing whites, getting high in the Eden Valley to make delicious wines, and exploiting alternative varieties to redefine the riverland, featuring winemaker Luisa Rose of Yolumba and Pusey Vale in the Barossa, and Greg Gregorio of the Delinquenti Wine Company on the banks of the Murray River in the Riverland.
1: But I think one of the things that we've all got in Australia these days in common, whether we're making the traditional brands and varieties or, or some of the new things, and that is ultimately, the, I think we're all trying to make wines that sort are, of, you know, delicious and refreshing. It's a great, it's a great word. Mm-hmm. I mean, if wine isn't refreshing, it sort of misses the mark.
2: The way that it all sort of started was I was working in in the winery, doing vintage cellar hand work, and we saw, you know, the first crop of these vineyards coming into the winery, these varieties that the winery hadn't, you know, ever processed before that they were sort of trialing and playing around with. And, and it was sort of a light bulb moment. The quality, even in such young vines, the quality of the grapes and the flavors and, and the acidity and everything that they had highlighted to me that maybe this was an opportunity to make the quality and the the style of wine that I enjoy drinking from the place that I grew up.
3: Welcome to season two of Wine Thieves, the podcast for wine lovers. I'm Sarah D'Amato.
0: I'm John Subbo, and together we'll be your guides to the insider's world of wine, bringing you weekly interviews with top winemakers and winery owners,
3: and giving you the scoop on what matters most—namely, great wine and where and how it's made.
0: Thanks for joining us.
3: Welcome back to Wine Thieves. We've been on a bit of a hiatus over the early summer, traveling again, and but we're back with another episode.
0: We hope to share some cool news and information as we dive into the white wines of Australia. I think most of us understandably picture Australia as a warm country with beautiful beaches and great surfing, so well-suited to heat-loving grapes like Grenache, Shiraz and Mourvedre, or rather Mataro, synonym most often used for Mourvedre down under, which together make up the classic GSM blend. And of course there are other substantial reds made from Cabernet Sauvignon and even Alianico, Petit Verdot and Sangiovese. But, We're here to talk about white wines and we'll steer clear of Chardonnay, although there are plenty of excellent examples. Much improved indeed, I'd say, over the last couple of decades. But we'll concentrate instead on the new wave of eclectic and lively whites.
3: So, John, what comes to mind for you hearing summer whites, and especially in Australia then? What varieties or styles do you think of?
0: Oh, I'd say right off the top of my head, Vermentino is a grape that's gathering a lot of steam down under, certainly in places like uh, McLaren Vale. It's becoming a bit of a signature variety. It's, it's the grape, of course, that grows all over Corsica and the Ligurian coast and Provence and the south of France, where it's often known as Roll. But uh, Vermentino, something to look for. Riesling, obviously, uh, we'll hear a lot about that shortly, especially from the Eden and Clare Valleys. I have to say I'm a huge fan of those steely, bone-dry, essence-of-lime-flavored Rieslings from those regions. Verdelio, a bit of an oddity, but it's been grown in Australia since the early 1800s, if you can believe that. And you'll look for that in places like the Hunter Valley, Langhorne Creek, Manjumup, Margaret River, Riverland, Swan District, among others, Gruner, Austria's great variety. Uh, was first made in Australia back in 2009, and you'd find that in places like the Adelaide Hills, Canberra District, Eden Valley, uh, also Tasmania. And of course, Sarah, how can I forget to mention Semion from the Hunter Valley. For me, one of the most uh, recognizable whites of the Southern Hemisphere. Just love it when they get older and turn into that hot buttered Honeyed toast flavor. Kind of dull when they're young, to be honest, but uh, with 5, 10, 15, 25 years of age, man, they are magical. So, what have I missed?
3: Well, you know what? Fiano. Uh, We're going to hear a little bit about that shortly, the grape from uh, southern Italy, particular Campania. It's it's taking off in places like Clare Valley and and Hunter Valley, McLaren Vale and Riverland, Riverland, importantly. Also Marsan. Marsan you can find, too, in, in the Barossa and the McLaren Vale. In fact, some of the oldest continuously producing Marsan vines in the world are actually found not in uh, in the Rhone Valley, but in Australia's Victoria's Nagami Lakes, so, and here you can find it often blended with varieties that you do find as well in the southern France, Viognier and Roussanne, in particular. So, John, today our special guests include Con Greg Gregorio, a winemaker and partner at Dela Wine Company. And that's based in the Riverland, where he has really helped set Dela apart from much of the bulk production the region is better known for. So Con Greg is really pushing those boundaries, making these non-conformist wines and absolutely in every sense of the word that are much in demand right now so unconventional varieties like arintu malvasia bianco Fiano, um, bianco d'alesano even uh, a variety uh, and, and varieties um, gaining momentum in australia as well like Vermentino.
0: you say bianco d'alesano from from italy i mean it's even rare in italy it's growing in the riverland there that's that's pretty cool Uh, We'll also chat with one of my favourite Aussie winemakers, Louisa Rose, who probably needs no introduction for any followers of Australian wine, but we'll give her one anyway. Louisa is the head winemaker for Hillsmith Family Vineyards, family-owned company that includes Pusey Vale and, perhaps most famously, Yalumba under their wide-reaching umbrella. Pusey Vale put Eden Valley Riesling on the world map, And I would say Luisa literally created an identity for Viognier at Yalamba, the first Southern Hemisphere winery to produce wine from it. And Rose has been perfecting it for the last 20 years or so. And we could talk about her Shiraz and Grenache from the Nebraska, but we'll save that for another time.
3: So, John, let's start by taking a closer look then at the regions these illustrious winemakers exploit. So first, the Riverland, as I had mentioned, a region that is surely... Uh, less familiar to our listeners, even though by tonnage it is Australia's largest. You might call it the country's workhorse, as it really provides a majority of the wine that make up the multi-regional blends, which are a real hallmark of Australian wine. So the Riverland is located due north of the Barossa Valley, on the other side of the Mount Lofty Ranges, and It's extremely arid, so wine growing wouldn't be possible without the Murray River, which is Australia's longest river, and it spans over 2,500 kilometers. So think of it on par with other uh, lifeblood rivers like the Amazon and the Nile. Now, the river Murray as Australians would say provides water to about 1.5 million households along with farms in its wake it's so important it even has its own flag as I recently found out and it was created way back in the mid1800s now Greg grew up here as his family are longtime grape growers and more recent focus on quality wine that the region is producing is shining a new spotlight on the riverland thanks to dedicated growers and wineries like like Delicuente. We'll be sure to speak to Con, Greg, about the emergence of quality production and its trajectory. I'm really anxious to hear, John, about what we can expect now um, and of alternative varieties becoming the norm here.
0: Yes, I think there's much to learn and in many cases unlearned here, Sarah, especially with the growing awareness of the, I'd say, critical importance of planting the right varieties to match a region in order to make sustainable quality wine. And this is and will be the key for success for the Riverland. So for white grapes, for example, this means planting grapes that retain plenty of natural acidity, even in this hot, dry climate. I'm looking forward to hearing about some of the odd but highly appropriate grapes Congreg has already sourced in the Riverland and how these wines are being received by consumers. But now, Sarah, South Australia, let's zoom in on the Barossa Zone, which encompasses two very different and distinct regions, the Barossa Valley itself itself, in the lower-lying section, and the higher, cooler Eden Valley that were formerly separated back in 1997. The High Eden Valley is the only officially declared sub-region. It's pretty small, just 40 square kilometers, but you'll find celebrated names here, such as Mount Adam and Wines, and of course many other wineries' source grapes from the Eden. And within the hilly Eden Valley, which is northeast of Adelaide, there is plenty of climatic variability. Vines are planted at elevations up to about 500 metres or 1,600 feet or so above sea level with cooler vineyards such as Pusey Vale, Hedges, and High Eden Vineyards at the southern end of the valley. The more northerly vineyards of Henchke are at a slightly lower elevation and are notably warmer. In contrast to the Barossa itself, the Eden Valley is measurably cooler throughout the growing season and soils unsurprisingly vary too. The most common are variations on Loamy sands and clay loams, often with sprinkles of gravels derived from ironstone and quartz and other rock fragments, often well suited to dry farming.
3: So John, I'm gonna cut you off there as I know this topic of soils will certainly have you waxing poetic for some time, but we need to give the listeners some historical background on a few individuals and events that will be mentioned in the interview. Most notably, what was the first fleet? who was james busby and who were the MacArthur's? see summer whites is not so much of a light topic john especially when we take it on so i'm i'm going to throw one over to you here john to answer who was james busby
0: well, Sarah, glad you asked. Uh, James Busby was a civil engineer born in Edinburgh, Scotland in either 1801 or 1802, depending on which source you trust. And despite his importance in New Zealand's history, he is also known as the father of Australian wine. Busby was a viticulturalist and a writer with the ambition of bringing vines to the new colony. And he quite literally kick-started the production of Australian wine nearly 200 years ago. So, how did he get there? Well, he was offered a job as a mineral surveyor. And in the early 1830s, Busby returned to Australia from a long trip to France and Spain with a serious selection of grape variety cuttings, including most of the classic French grapes as well as grapes for fortified wine production. And still today, offshoots of his original cuttings can be found in some of Australia's finest vineyards. Busby first arrived in New South Wales, where he planted a vineyard with these cuttings from Europe, and taught at a farming school where his young, disadvantaged students helped him tend the vines. With his extensive knowledge and experience in viticulture, of course he had studied uh, viticulture in France, Busby published his first book on wine growing soon after arriving in Australia, called... Wait for it. A Treatise on the Culture of the Vine and the Art of Winemaking, back in 1825. And this work established him as an authority on New World Wine, certainly Australian wine. And wine from the so-called Orphan School Estate was exported to England with rave reviews. His success led him to work on a huge property near Carrowbrook, north of Singleton, where he was assigned convict servants to help plant vineyards. As you know, Sarah, there were many convicts to work with in Australia. So following that epic tour of French and Spanish vineyards, during which he collected literally tens of thousands of vine cuttings, likely including Shiraz, Merlot, Chardonnay, Grenache, among others, he returned to plant more than 350 of them in 1833 at his family home in Kirkton. Cuttings were also distributed across the state and further afield to South Australia and into Victoria. But that's not all. He also touched Tasmania in the southeast area known as Tasman, where he planted more vine stock in Waitangi. In 1840, Busby co-authored the Treaty of Waitangi with the purpose of recognizing Maori ownership of their lands, forests, and other possessions, and giving them the rights of British subjects, surprisingly enough, for that era, and this paved the way for a declaration of British sovereignty. It was signed in February of that year, 1840.
3: Wow, so he wasn't a lazy guy at all, even in his long 70-year life, that is a dizzying amount of work. Okay, so a shorter explanation of the First Fleet and then of uh, the MacArthur's. Now, Australia's first fleet was a group of 11 ships and about 1,400 people who established the first European settlements in Botany Bay and Sydney. And they were arriving all the way from Portsmouth, England. And it was made up of two Royal Navy vessels, three store ships, and six convict transports. Now, can you imagine it took them over 250 days to make the 24,000-kilometer journey and resulted in a, a penal colony that would become the first European settlement in Australia. So wine production in Australia dates back to that settlement in 1788, when the first grapevine cuttings were brought to Australia by Governor Arthur Phillip on his ship that made up the part of the first fleet, from the Cape of Good Hope. Those vines were planted on a site called Farm Cove in the area now known as Sydney. Now, those first, those early plantings didn't produce the extraordinary Australian wine that was hoped for, mainly because of humidity and this really intense heat that caused the grapes to rot but it did mark the beginning of wine production in Australia. So many, many vineyards afterwards were established, and by the 1890s, wines were being produced in the Hunter Valley, the Yarra Valley, and the Barossa Valley areas. Now, on to the MacArthur's. In the early 1800s, a man by the name of John MacArthur, an aspiring winemaker, planted grapes on his Camden Park property just southwest of Sydney. And his ability to cultivate and produce wines and sell them for profit was a reason that he's become widely credited with cultivating the first commercial winery and vineyard in Australia. So he mainly worked with Pinot Gris, with Gouet, with. Cabernet Sauvignon, Frontenac and Verdellio varieties and and by the 1920s the Australian wine trade was really really full steam now we're going to hear a little bit about the MacArthur family in relationship to Riesling Um, Louise is going to to mention that and that's because the MacArthur family were custodians of the collection of vines in New South Wales and also of that collection that James Busby had brought over from which one important important variety was missing. And this was Riesling. So we'll hear from Louisa about what the MacArthur family did to rectify that.
0: And so with that wealth of historical background information, let's bring on our guests, Luisa Rose of Yolamba and Congreg Gregorio of Delinquente Wines. We reach them on a cool winter's night in South Australia.
1: Rose, I'm the head winemaker for the Hillsmith family of Yolumba and and Pusey Vale. And I'm here in the beautiful Eden Valley in the middle of winter, enjoying an open fire tonight.
0: What's the temperature there by sheer curiosity?
1: I reckon it's about uh, two or three degrees Celsius out there at the moment.
2: Okay, that's that's genuinely cool. I know, it's not like
1: the middle of a Toronto winter, but for (laughs) us it's cold.
2: (laughs) That's cold. That's cold enough for me. That's plenty cold. Uh, My name's Con Greg. I'm the owner and uh, winemaker for Delinquente Wine Company based in Adelaide in South Australia, working with fruit from the Riverland in South Australia.
3: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, this conversation is in about summer whites. And this is this is going to be a a difficult topic for you when it's only two to three degrees outside. But if you can imagine where we are now, and it's absolutely beautiful and warm and sunny. And we're we're thirsty. We're definitely very thirsty at this time of year. Louisa, I want to start with you and um, talking about white varieties now, in particular Riesling, but I think it would be a shame not to talk about Viognier as well, because you know you were credited with having forged an identity for Australia and Viognier nationally around the globe, and, and Viognier was first planted in Australia in the 1970s, and although challenging to grow, it's very distinctive. So I wanted to know what about Viognier captured your imagination, and what are some of your favourite Viognier's? Are there Viognier's for all seasons, including summer? Yeah, well, great great question.
1: So Viognier is, is one of the varieties that, that we trialled, you know, in the 1980s at Chilumba. One of the varieties we thought would do well in the Barossa and maybe the cooler part of the Barossa, which is the Eden Valley, the, the higher altitude part of the Barossa, because the region had been growing, you know, the, the Rhone red varieties of Shiraz and Grenache and Mouvedra for well over 100 years. And if they thrived in, in this beautiful sort of Mediterranean climate that we have here in, in South Australia, why, why wouldn't those beautiful exotic white wines of, you know, Viognier, Roussan uh, particularly, why wouldn't they do well? And so with that sort of in mind, we, we embarked on sort of having a look at it. We found some material, you right. It was first planted in the late 1970s. There were a few vines at the Heathcote uh, Winery in Victoria And then we discovered that, in fact, just down the road at the Nuriotpa Research Station, which is a government-owned agricultural research station, there were a few vines of Viognier that had been brought in in the 1960s from Montpellier. And so we took uh, some cuttings from those and started our own vineyard, planted first in 1980. Sarah, you you talked about it being difficult to grow. And I know know that's what people tell me. It's not really difficult to grow. It just is different to understand. And the variety, you know, that we've been making in the Eden Valley for so many years in decades you know over 100 years in fact of course is Riesling and in so many ways Viognier turns out to be the sort of the, the complete opposite mm. of what Riesling is. And Riesling is a fine aromatic you know high acidity, natural acidity variety that loves growing you know the grapes growing in the shade of the canopy and they love to be light you know, bright and green and, and pretty and, and Viognier uh, you know, it's a low acid, you know, richer variety. The grapes like to be out in the sunshine, you know, to the point where sometimes they get a bit of a suntan. I often think mm-hmm. that they really should have, they should be an Indigenous variety to Australia because we're known mm-hmm. for, for loving the sunshine here and um, in summer and Viognier is certainly that. So not difficult, but just different. And it took us a long time, you know, a number of years to really understand how to grow the Viognier so that the best flavours, you know, came into those grapes.
0: Okay, uh, Congreg, we're going to get you in in a second, but a couple more questions about the Viognier. I know you make three different tiers, at least at at Yolamba. How do you treat those vineyards that supply the grapes for the different tiers differently? And then uh, what do you do in the winery to create the different levels?
1: Uh, Well, we don't actually do that much that's different. So really what makes those wines different in the vineyards is where they come from. So we have the Vigilius, which is our top wine, uh, which is from the Eden Valley, as is our Samuel's collection, Viognier. And those two wines both come from the Eden Valley. We're looking for for grapes that are lovely and sort of ripe, to say, out in the sunshine. And as soon as we we taste those Viognier flavours that come into the grapes, the apricots and ginger, that's when we pick the grapes. The Y Series Viognier, which is, you know, well-known, you know, in North America and, and Canada particularly, is a wine that doesn't see any oak uh, when it comes into the winery, but it comes from a number of different regions within South Australia. Then the Riverland area along the beautiful Murray River, you know, where there's just so much sort of beautiful sort of warmth and sunshine, some from the Barossa Valley, even some from the south, what we call the southeast of South Australia. So a region called Rappinbully, which is down near Kunawara, a much newer region and a region that was, that was planted really first in the early 1990s, so a cooler, more maritime climate down there. So we, we bring all those things together for the Y series, those different regions. But when we bring the grapes into the winery, it's it's really very simple. We pick the grapes, we press the grapes, the juice goes straight to the vessel that the wine is going to ferment in or the juice is going to ferment into wine in, in the case of the Vigilius and the Eden Valley Viognier, that tends to be mature French barrels. For the Y series, it's all stainless steel. But what's happened is that the natural yeast that have come in from the vineyards, they piggyback in on the grapes, they wash into the juice when the grapes are pressed. And over the next sort of week or, or two, they start to ferment and then they do that they complete the fermentation. And then the wines sit on their lees until we're ready to do the blending. So the winemaking is really very similar and simple. What differentiates the wines really is exactly where they come from in those vineyards.
3: Right, so that's what makes up all of these these different tiers, which we know well here in Canada. So I'm just going to flip over to Con Greg for a moment to talk a little bit about the Riverland, um, which is Australia's largest wine growing region by tonnage. I believe there are over twenty two thousand hectares under vine. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Riverland? Do you consider it a region that's underappreciated, and why? And to tell us a little bit about the cooling influence of the Murray River in terms of quality production and and white wine production.
2: Yeah. So I grew up in the Riverland. I was born and raised in the Riverland and in the wine industry. My grandparents and my father's been in the wine industry for a long time. So for me, the Riverland wine industry is something that is fairly close to my heart. Although, as you said, it's a region that could potentially claim to be underappreciated from a, mm. a more fine wine perspective. At the same time, it, it probably didn't deserve that recognition for, for many, many years from a fine wine perspective, because it is focused and, and most of the wineries there are focused on bulk production, low quality, high quantity wine. And that's definitely what I grew up with um, and sort of what I believed as a kid and um, working in, in wineries and and out on the family vineyard, that's what I believed the Riverland wine industry was. So it's an interesting thing to say that it's underappreciated. From a fine wine perspective, I don't really think that's the case. From a from what the Riverland does for the Australian wine industry, I think it's potentially under underappreciated because it is such a workhorse um, and does provide fruit for so many different wineries around the country, as, as Louisa said, you know. Viognier from the Riverland goes into that Y-series. A lot of the Y-series wines that are so popular all around the world. So from a fine wine production and from sort of a a quality point of view, I think there has been a lot of sort of progressions made within the Riverland in the last maybe 10 to 15 years. And a lot of that has been focused on the alternative varieties, varieties that are really, really well suited to the climate in the Riverland, the Riverland being north of the Barossa Valley on the other side of the last sort of section of the Mount Lofty Ranges, it's effectively in the desert if it wasn't for the Murray River, um, which is you know a lifeblood of southeastern Australia. So the shift, I suppose, for for a very small segment um, of the Riverland wine industry to focus on varieties that are suited to the climate, um, you know, that retain natural acidity, that ripen a little bit later in the seasons for avoiding you know the extreme heat of, of January and February. Has meant that we can um, you know, create wines that are of a higher quality and sort of shift, I suppose, the the focus and the narrative around what quality Riverland wine you know can be. So
0: Congreg, tell us a little bit about the startup project here down Quente Wine. So almost a decade old at, at the moment and working predominantly with these alternative varieties, Southern Italian varieties in particular. We can see why you would have done that. But tell us about the scene in Australia. I mean, Australia is certainly better known internationally, at least. Red wine, Cabernets and Shirazes and GSM blends and so on. A little bit less for whites, with obvious exceptions. Great Chardonnay, Hunter Valley, Sémillon, Riesling, we could throw in there. Viognier, of course. But uh, you're working with varieties that are little known, even in their countries of origin like Fiano and Bianco D'Alessano and and Arinto and these sort of things. Did you create a market for these wines? Because I presume they were going predominantly into bulk wine production beforehand. Or uh, did you sort of survey the scene and and recognize that there's an opportunity here to bring in new varieties into the uh, discussion of, of Australian wines?
2: Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the varieties that, that we work with were, are more recent plantings, you know, sort of generally uh, the two vineyards that we work with um, in the Riverland planted these varieties in, in the mid-noughts or, or noughties or whatever you want to call them, so around 2006 to 2008. So they're relatively new plantings and v- relatively new varieties in Australia.
0: Could you lift, so, list off some of those varieties for those who are Yeah, familiar? so
2: we, we work primarily with Vermentino Montepulciano and neradavola and we also have access to you know a little bit of some even more sort of obscure varieties you mentioned Bianco d'Alessano, which is a, a very obscure variety even in Italy in Puglia where it's from and then also varieties like Arinto, Malvasia Bianco, uh, Graciano uh, these sort of things. So yeah so it was actually interesting. The way that it all sort of started was I was working in in the winery um, that my father was running at the time, just doing vintage cellar hand work. And we saw, you know, the first crop of uh, these vineyards coming into the winery. These varieties that the winery hadn't, you know, ever processed before, and they were very small ferments in, you know, a twenty thousand ton winery. Very small ferments that they were sort of trialing and playing around with, and and it was sort of a light bulb moment. The quality, you know, even in such young vines, the quality of the grapes and the flavours and and the acidity and everything that they had um, sort of highlighted to me that maybe this was an opportunity to, um, you know, make the quality and the the style of wine that I enjoy drinking, um, you know, from the place that I grew up. Um, So we really sort of went down that path, you know, focused very little on Um, I suppose, you know, any of the things that wine brands generally focus on when they're launching a wine brand heritage and prestige and, and, you know, things that people, you know, think of when they think of wine, um, I sort of being 25 at the time and, and, you know, no real experience with running a business or launching a brand, I went in the complete opposite direction and, um, and just sort of thought, I'm just going to make the best wine that we can. And, and, you know, hopefully the wine will do the talking um when i went out into the trade by myself with with the first wines that we made no one that i spoke to had had any experience with vermentino they didn't know how to pronounce Montepulciano, and a lot of the time it was a little bit standoffish i suppose but it was all about like i said the quality of the wine and and once the wines were tasted that started to open the doors and um, started to do the work and, and slowly but surely you know we progressed from there so Did we create the scene? I don't think we created it. There was a movement sort of already happening at the time. Did we ride that wave a little bit? Yeah, I think we did.
3: And have others since you started this, though, jumped on the bandwagon of these varieties? I mean, we're starting, as you mentioned, there there is a movement and a growing movement. How do you see that evolving?
2: yeah absolutely that specifically with the vineyards that we that we work with there is and the growers that we work with there is a a lot of demand for for their grapes um and they've you know worked very hard to expand the amount of uh, land under vine with these alternative varieties having said that being i suppose sort of at the start of that growth has allowed us to sort of stake out our claim i suppose and and make sure that we get what we need being from the riverland as well uh, is it has been you know a very has been something that's helped out a lot because you know there's a lot of smaller wineries and larger wineries that come knocking on the door from all over the country even you know from New South Wales and Queensland and Victoria, not just from all over South Australia, wanting the grapes from these vineyards, and we've been able, like I said, to sort of stake our claim and get what we need. But it has um, seen a lot of demand for sure.
0: Lots of handshake contracts.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We we work with vineyard that's owned by Bruce and Val Basham in Barmera, and these are third generation grape growers um, on that block of land. It was actually uh, a block of land that was given to Bruce's grandfather upon returning home from World War One. You know, at the start of the Riverland as an agricultural region and an irrigated region, so um, he's done fifty-seven vintages in a row on his vineyard. Wow. Uh, he he knows the block of land very very well, and that's why I don't grow grapes because I can't compete with that. So uh, I'd rather I'd rather be the lucky person that that's able to turn those grapes into wine. So. Yes, definitely, sort of an old school approach and, and a lot of handshakes. And uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see how
0: our- happy to hear that's still uh, still a part of the Australian wine scene.
2: Absolutely. Right. Let's
0: chat a little bit about Riesling because it's, a, of course, a great summer white. Actually, it's a great all year white, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And Louisa, you make some pretty terrific examples at the Pusey Vale vineyards up there in the Eden Valley. But if you could just uh, maybe take a step back and tell us about. Riesling in Australia historically, how has it evolved since it first arrived, one of the original varieties planted for many, many years? And, um, and how has the perception and the acceptance of Australian Riesling evolved over your time?
1: So Riesling had, does have a very long history in Australia, um, not quite on the first fleet, but it was brought out in 1838 by the MacArthur family. They were at that stage, the custodians of the collection of grapevines within New South Wales at the time. And they realised that in the collection that they'd partly responsible for and also that James Busby had brought in, that, that they'd taken over, that there was one very important variety that was missing and that was Riesling. And so they went back to Germany in the Rheingau and, and took cuttings from a vineyard in the Rheingau, brought them back into Australia. And so 1838 is the magic year that uh, Riesling first arrived. From there, it was uh, grown in the MacArthur's Camden Nursery, again in New South Wales, not far, not, not far out of Sydney. And then, like all great nurseries, they started to advertise these varieties that they had for sale. And, and one of them was Riesling. And it was first planted in the Eden Valley by the Gilbert family. And the Gilbert, um, Joseph Gilbert came out from Wiltshire in England. Um, in the early 1840s, and he planted the first reasoning in the Eden Valley on what, what he called his Pusey Vale station, his Pusey Vale vineyard. Um, and that was the first vineyard to be planted in the Eden Valley with reasoning. And it's still very famous for reasoning now under the Hillsmith ownership all those years later, 175 years later. It's interesting because, you know, if you think about white wines pre-refrigeration, you know, back, I often think about them and how they would have been made and I suspect not that differently really to how we make them now, although of course there was no refrigeration. But because they were often made and and grown in cooler regions, such as the Eden Valley, which has got that altitude, Pusey Vale's up around that 500 metres above sea level, you know, they would have had cold nights even in summer, um, as we still do, you know, which would have kept those fermentations a little bit cooler. And we've got some records of um, some of the Pusey Vale Rieslings from the uh, about the sort of the 1870s that were sent off to uh, wine competitions in London, and we, they were analysed, and we see that the alcohols were, you know, when we convert them back into to language that we understand now, about that 12 and a half, 13%, um, which is pretty much where where the reasoning sit these days. So, you know, our supposition is that the wines were probably very similar in style to we, what we make today, which mostly in Australia are, are dry wines because we have plenty of sunshine and you know those lovely cold nights to keep the acidity, but but sunshine to to ripen the sugars and to ripen those flavours. And so the 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 balance where Riesling works in the Eden Valley and other regions like Clare and and Canberra and Western Australia and even in, into Tasmania, which is you know really cold by comparison. Mostly those wines are still are still dry. So that's pretty much what we're uh, what we're used to.
3: Louisa, you've been making wine at Pusey Vale Vineyard, if I'm not mistaken, since 1996. And as you mentioned, this is only one variety is planted here. It's Riesling. So could you tell us a little bit more about the vineyard itself, why it's such an idyllic spot for Riesling? You mentioned that diurnal shift and the cool certainly make some of the most coveted Rieslings in Australia but it's it's can be a challenge to manage right here it's it's got poor soils there's elevations these rocky outcrops could you specifically describe some of those those individual plots within the Pusey Vale vineyard including the organically certified contours block? Yeah
1: absolutely so it is all Riesling as you say Um, and the oldest vines that we have on the vineyard now are the, are the vines that were planted in 1961 when the Hillsmith family took over the land and, and resurrected the vineyard. So under Gilbert ownership, it was there for about 70 or 80 years and then there was a couple of decades in the middle and then um, the Hillsmith family brought it and, and resurrected it. We have, as you say, in the Eden Valley, it's, it's up around that 500 metres. It's gently sloping, so the aspect's lovely. It faces mainly to the north, so north, northeast, northwest in a sort of an amphitheatre shape. And, of course, for us, north is facing the sunshine, so that's uh, the riper aspect and we have vines that were planted in 1961, 1962, sort of 65, 66. They are on on contours, so they they were planted on the sort of the natural terraces of the gentle slopes. They're not steep slopes, but the gentle slopes so that they were able to intercept any rain that fell, in particularly in summer because we don't get a lot of rain in summer. So any anything that falls is sort of precious, so we want it to not run off down the slopes. We don't want it to erode the soils. We just want it. We want to capture it. So viticulture in those days was all about ploughing. So you had grapevines and you had ploughed soil. You didn't have any grasses or anything growing in your vineyard like we would now. So um, that soil preservation was really important in those days. And then we've got some other other blocks that have been planted again from the same planting material, but you know cuttings taken, uh, planted some in the 80s and then quite a lot in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Still all the same variety now in straight rows, lots of biodiversity. And, and we decided in 1995 to make the first of what you, you mentioned, the contours. And so we chose a block that actually, despite everything I've just said, is the only southerly facing slope in the vineyard, planted in 1965. We made that wine, bottled it young, kept it um, and, and only released it as an aged wine. So about that six year six years of age is when we, when we release it. Sealed under screw cap, so perfect bottle age. And very soon after we started making that wine specifically as a separate batch, you know, we decided that we thought this was you know a great vineyard, you know, one of the great Riesling vineyards of the world. We knew we were making beautiful wines and had been for for decades and decades, but there was always this sort of this sort of niggle in the sort of the back of our minds. Is you know what if managing something biodynamically specifically, and and that means organically, and then taking it to that next step? What if there's something in that? What if there is something in some of those things that don't necessarily make sense to the scientific side of us, but maybe they just create some sort of magic? So we decided that we would go through the process of starting to manage it biodynamically and go through that certification process. And it was certified for the 2013 vintage was the first vintage that it was biodynamically certified and we continue to farm it that way. I think we're still sort of looking, you know, and and watching it. The wines are still amazing, you know, they certainly and, and importantly, they, they certainly are not dropping off in their quality. Are they getting better? I think they probably I think they probably are. I think it's still a mystery. I think it's one of those amazing things. And you started the question off about why is it a great place to grow reasoning The answer is, you know, I mean there's some simple things, but really we, we don't know. We don't know why terroir makes wines taste like they do. I mean, I'd love to be able to tell you that, you know, the really shallow soil, and I say shallow, it's 20, you know, 30 centimetres at best. It's full of quartz and granite stones and sandstone and gravel. The diurnal temperature, I think, is really important. Although I think for Riesling, for us it's our diurnal temperatures, we get lovely warm days. But I think the key with Riesling, with great Rieslings of the world, when you look where they grow, it's coolness at night. Now, whether it's just plain cold all the time, or whether it's you've got those lovely cool nights and then the warmer days where you get that diurnal shift. I think the key is that coldness at night, and that's what makes a great Mm -hmm. Riesling site. Um, And then all the other things that make a great Riesling site, honestly, I I don't know, but Eden Valley, of course, is one of those tried and proven regions.
0: What's a typical diurnal shift towards uh, the start of harvest?
1: Well, so we would be picking in late February to sort of early April, depending on the season and and the vineyard, honestly, it ripens because of all those different patches, it would ripen over three, sometimes four weeks anyway. You know, it's not unusual down to be, you know, five or six degrees, you know, Celsius where, you know, in overnight. Um, and then it can be up to 25, even 30 degrees during
0: the day. I think that would be surprising for some listeners to know that it gets down to five, six degrees in in the Barossa area in Australia towards uh, towards harvest time. Good, good point to know. So from you know what we could rightly call a classic, uh, let's move to the irreverent side of Australian wine. I think uh, Australians in general, and certainly winemakers, are known a little bit for their irreverence, thumbing their noses to a degree at the at uh, the stuffy old world of, of Europe. And Congreg, you've taken a really interesting marketing approach with your wines with some pretty wild fantasy names and some wild backstories and uh, and labels that really pop out from across the room. So tell us a little bit about how you wanted to approach presenting your wines to the world and how that kind of fits into the Australian ethos of being a little bit fun and making, you know, as you call them down there, smashable wines.
2: Yeah, I mean, like I said before, I started the brand when I was 25 years old, and I didn't, I suppose, have the have have any reason not to do exactly what I wanted. It's what you do when you're 25 years old you you just do whatever the hell you want. So when I started the the label, I just wanted to make the wines that I enjoy drinking from the place that I grew up, and like I said, I didn't want them to look anything like. A wine label i wanted to work with my friends you know the people that i knew artists creative people to create something that i suppose spoke to them and, and sort of made wine appear less stuffy and and sort of you know something that everyone should be drinking and by making wines from varieties that people weren't aware of or had really no connection to uh, and same goes for the region by making wines from a region that most people, even in Australia, are, are unaware of. Most wine drinkers, unless they have a real, real interest and know a lot about you know wine regions across the country, don't know what the Riverland is or where it is or its importance in the country's wine industry. So all of those things meant that You know, we could really put our own spin on it and be, like you said, be irreverent and not have any of that classic wine marketing sort of around it all. Can
0: you describe a label or two of yours, the name, and uh, we'll set set up a link so people can see them because that's worth uh, a thousand words. But, you know, in, in a thousand words or less, describe a couple of the labels and the images and the stories behind them.
2: Yeah, so they're all, uh, all of the main ones, the delinquenti ones, they're all um, faces or, or characters. All of the characters were developed by a friend of mine, an artist called uh, Jason Cohen, who primarily um, is an illustrator and at the time was doing a lot of street art and sort of large format street art, both legal and illegal. And his style was something that really, really spoke to me. So I basically, Came up with the name Delinquenti and said to him, mate, you're the biggest delinquent I know, so I want you to create a wine label that doesn't look like a wine label. You can do whatever you want. Mm. So he came up with these characters, their whole names, their backstories, names like Screaming Betty and and Pretty Boy and Tough Nut and, and Weeping Wine and all these different things that that sort of tell a story, I suppose, through their names and, and through the words on the label, but also through the artwork. The characters all have a variety of face tattoos that, that sort of speak to their story and where they're from. You know, delinquenti sort of obviously is Italian for delinquent. And, you know, we saw ourselves as outsiders, you know, in the wine industry and sort of an idea to represent the outsider in general and and sort of give a voice to that within our little section of, of the world was uh, was the idea behind it You know,
3: Congreg, I had an absolute wild time reading all of those extensive backstories of the characters. And, you know, I was thinking that if I was an actor who had a small role and I had to really delve into it to get to the bottom of my character, this is the sort of research that I would do. And I certainly encourage our listeners to have a a look on your website to read them. But as as you said, they're quite extensive. You write some of them and, and other of your collaborators write some of them. How does that come to be? Because they're they're basically these stories that that you've written. You've become authors.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, the funny thing was, Jason developed you know the characters and and the backstories to him, but it wasn't ever really written down for a long time. And we made the decision a couple of years back to I suppose. As the brand had grown, and, and as you know, people became more aware and and wanted to know more about um, the, our ideas, and you know what what we stood for, it was an opportunity for us to really expand those. So we we did we went down that path and and worked with a, a couple of more friends of mine within Adelaide, a couple of copywriters and creatives to to come up with more in depth stories about these characters. The idea behind all of them was that there was a personal connection in some way to mm-hmm. why these characters are who they are and and why that writer you know is in a position to write about them yeah. sometimes it's from the angle of uh, lgbtq person a female angle for me it was a right what writing about rocco named after my grandfather and, and that sort of uh immigrant experience moving to australia you know in the 50s and 60s and you know what that sort of meant for my family so that was really personally very useful but also from a brand point of view i think it really sort of solidified the message around delinquency and what we do well, every wine has its backstory, whether it's a
0: classic or an irreverent backstory. I mean, the backstory is still an important part of the whole perception of the wine. And you've both been very generous with your time. We know it's uh, late evening, winter's night. But before we close, I just, uh, I'd love to hear from you about some of your favorite australian summer whites you can name names if you want but maybe just a few varieties a few places just so listeners can uh, can start tracking down this other side of australian wine so louisa what what are you drinking when you're not drinking pusyvale riesling and virgilius uh, viognier where would you go shopping in australia for some fun summer whites
1: well we do have great rieslings in australia from all sorts of regions but when, Con, um, Greg was talking before about Vermentino and, and it is a variety which, you know, we are starting to see a little bit sort of creeping in now. You know, there's not a lot, but it is such a refreshing wine. Grown, you know, traditionally in quite warm parts of uh, of Italy and, you know, why wouldn't it do so well? And Riverland is absolutely key for it. Um, there's a few people that are, that are up there and, and Con, Greg knows them, them well, that are making some really sort of fun sort of styles, either blends of or, or that. So, If you can find some Australian vermentino, um, and I'm not sure how much makes it uh, a a way across the Pacific like that, but, you know, it it is sort of ultimate sort of refreshing nature. I I know when it first started to be made, oh, it's over 10 years ago now in the Riverland, we used to try and get, there was a bit of a group of us who got together and talked about vermentino and sardines and and what this sort of great match of this sort of beautiful sort of salty fish and almost a... You know, in many parts of the world, almost a sort of a fish that was sort of a byproduct and a bit of a waste. And so it was sort of this idea about sustainability and growing these, you know, beautiful varieties like Vermentino and stuff like that. So if you can find something like that, I reckon they're they're, they're classic sort of summer drinks. Isn't the
0: Vermentino becoming sort of a signature grape of McLaren Bale, mainly because they're right on the sea and uh, they eat a lot of Mm. seafood?
1: Yeah, I think there's some down there but honestly, you know, it is one of those varieties that the, the warmer the climate the better it sort of seems to be. So yeah, I'd be sure look I'm yeah, they're doing great things with it in McLaren Vale but you know, they're doing great things with it up in the Riverland as well and you know, that's where I'd go if you could if you could find them. There's also some pretty refreshing bubbles around uh, you know, Australia, particularly coming out of Tasmania. I mean, that's sort of the the other extreme of what we've been talking about. What more could you want on a summer's day than a nice cold glass of uh,
3: sparkling wine? Thank you, Louisa. And Congreg, But uh, what about you? What about outside of the Riverland? Is there are there any go to summer whites for you in Australia?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Riesling. I don't want to just repay the favor, but Riesling <laughs> is a favorite in our, our household. And, and I grew up, Pusey Riesling was a gateway drug for me, I think, with, with wine, to be perfectly <laughs> mm-hmm. honest. You know, I drank a lot of it and, and bought a lot of it and still do. And, you know, Riesling from the Ca- Clare Valley, I enjoy, you know, the classics, you know, obviously Grosset, Pikes, you know, Water Vaar Riesling, but also some of the newer styles. Um, there's a fantastic producer, young guys, based in the Clare Valley called Kerner. K-O-E-R-N-E-R, if you're going to look it up. They make some fantastic Fermentino as well as Riesling. Some in the more sort of classic style, you know, direct press and, and lively, clean that fresh, you know, what you expect from Clear Valley, but also some skin contact on some of their wines. Lots of texture, you know, nice sort of touch of oak and, and very, very refreshing on, on in a summer's day. And being so close, living in Adelaide now and being so close to the Adelaide Hills, we drink a lot of Chardonnay. From the Adelaide Hills and, and a lot of the newer producers, guys like uh, BK Wines. Murdoch Hill is a fantastic producer who make a variety of, of brilliant Chardonnays. That's a real go-to for us. Fantastic food wine, but when it's hot and, and you want something with a lot of flavour and a lot of bang for your buck, that's where I go.
0: And we haven't even mentioned Hunter Valley Semio. We'll have to save that for, a, <laughs> okay, no, for another episode. <laughs> but it's a, quite a deep repertoire of, of great summer whites. So one last question, Congreor, are we ever going to see Delinquente up uh, up in Canada?
2: Yeah, oh, I've had the great luck to have come to Toronto in at the end of twenty eighteen before. My world got turned upside down with kids and before the whole world got mm-hmm. turned upside down with with COVID. So, um, yeah, I, I had an absolute ball there um, and a very receptive time in the trade with the wines. It was really, really fun to to sort of see that. It's always fun for me as it is, I, I suppose. Yeah, I'm sure Louisa feels this way as well. But it's always incredible for me to go to the other side of the world and, and see people interested in drinking the wines. It just it sort of still blows my mind. Um, having not had the opportunity to do that for a few years to um, so uh, have an import in ontario yeah uh, bespoke bespoke wine oh great
1: i'm hoping to be over in october again we'll see what happens oh, great. Um, travel around the world. there's just one thing i think which is um you know a bit of a thread that's that's gone you know through and, and maybe we haven't really spoken all that much but i think one of the things that we've all got in australia these days in common whether we're making the traditional brands and varieties or, or some of the new things and, and that is ultimately the, I think we're all trying to make wines that sort are, of, you know delicious and refreshing it's a great it's a great word mm-hmm. I mean if wine isn't refreshing it sort of misses the mark it's about going well with food and with occasions and you know particularly in summer it has to you know to be that and I think you'll find you know that However many Australian winemakers you talk about, you know, they might be making different varieties and different styles, but ultimately if that if the wine doesn't capture those two things being delicious and refreshing, then um yeah, there's not much point. That's a well perfect said. way
0: to to wrap things up. Delicious and refreshing. And I guess it's been terrific. Lovely to have you on the show, Louisa Congreg. Look forward to the next conversation.
1: Thanks. Yes. Bye Thank everyone. See you, Congreg.
3: Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.
3: To Louisa Rose and Con Greg Gregorio, who we reached on that very frigid winter's night to talk about summer whites, I think they they did a fantastic job, don't you, John? Giving us a sense of what is refreshing and innovative, despite that that cold winter's evening. No,
0: yeah, and also that historical perspective I find really quite fascinating. You know, it's impressive to think that Riesling has been made for over 150 years in the Eden Valley, and and it was likely in a similar style as we find today, you know, sort of dry, bone-dry, mid-weight, really refreshing, high-acid, Really interesting that uh, Louisa says they have data dating back to the 1870s about the Rieslings from Pusey Vale that were sent off to competition, and they had, back then, as they still have today, about 125 half to 13% alcohol. So, historically, we can say pretty confidently that the climate has suited Riesling then, as it does now, and a big part of that, uh, as she mentioned, is that big diurnal shift, those warm days. Of course, you're going to get in South Australia, but also the cool nights that come with a little bit of Elevation.
3: You know, I also love to hear Louisa talk about Viognier. I always love to hear Louisa talk about Viognier and talk about those cuttings from Montpellier. Uh, where I'm recording this right now is not too far from Montpellier and I've had my fair share of Viognier this summer. But uh, she mentioned here that, you know, Viognier is actually not too difficult to grow. It's just misunderstood. There's a real champion in all sense of uh, in all sense of the term. Uh, it's a variety that is uh, loving sunshine, and sometimes they even get a bit of a suntan. Um, and she thinks that, you know, this is a variety that should have been indigenous to Australia, which I think is a great comment.
0: Well, uh, give it another 100 years and we can at least call it endemic right to uh, to australia right. And she exactly. also gives a nice, a nice shot in the arm to the concept of, of terroir and vineyard variation. For those of you who still believe you can only get vineyard variation in the old world, well, think again, just look at that series of Viognier's that she makes, uh, all made essentially in the same way. The only thing that differs between them is, of course, the origin of the grapes and maybe a little bit of oak here and there. But, uh, it's a, it's a great tasting we've done at you and I, Sarah, comparing and contrasting and they're all fantastic in their context. For sure. And surely uh, Congreg is is shifting the narrative on what quality can be in the Riverland and working with those uh, unusual, call them oddball varieties, but amazingly well suited to the hot, dry conditions of the Riverland. You know, grapes that we rarely know in the old world, uh, in their place of origin, like Bianco d'Alessano and Arintu from... Portugal and Vermentino and so on, there's uh, much to be discovered in, in the Riverland. And I would not have pegged that as a spot mm-hmm. to go looking for crunchy, refreshing whites.
3: No, for sure not. It's pretty hot in in the Riverland. But he notices that these new varieties that were just planted in the knots or naughties as they called them in the 2000s, you know, they're starting to understand them a lot better, and um, that's helping them grow better grapes and choose better sites.
0: Yeah, and and it makes sense that he's not focusing on on heritage and history and prestige like many wineries do. Of course, there isn't really that history in the Riverland of quality wine production. So uh, he had to take a different direction, and I love it. I mean, that sort of encapsulates the Australian spirit for me, making fun and smashable wines, as he as he calls them. And, you know, after all, he did start the brand when he was 25 years old and didn't want it to look anything like a, a traditional wine label, just wanted to make the best wines that he could. And he's got those irreverent uh, fun labels.
3: Love those labels. So one last word about Riesling, John, and about contours... Louisa thinks that Contours, on the southerly slope in the, in the vineyard, that Contours block, which was planted in 1965 of Riesling, and it's only released as an aged wine, that it is one of the great Riesling vineyards of the world. And because of that, they made the decision to farm biodynamically. It was certified for the first time, she says, in 2013. And and Louisa actually thinks that the wines are getting, actually getting better, but does, isn't isn't looking at the science behind it and thinks that there are some things that perhaps we don't know and we we will never know. It's a mystery about winemaking. What did you think about her statement, John? That it's a mystery why a particular site grows good wine.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think she probably knows a little bit more than she was letting on. Is there's of course the romance of the mystery of a site and it's true you know there are some sites that you expect to make great wine and and they simply don't and then again there are others that look pretty ordinary at least visually uh, yet produce extraordinary wine. So there's certainly a little bit of mystery there, but I think we can kind of parse out some of the details that make the contours, and uh, Eden Valley in particular, great for Riesling. And I'll bring up again that uh, elevation, which gives you the, the uh, cool nights and warm days. That's got to be clearly part of it. Obviously, there's something in the soil that um, gives a little special something. Maybe that's the mysterious part. It's hard to quantify the elements. Well, I'm going to leave it at, uh, you know, part mystery, part science. And that's usually where we end up on all of these matters, (laughs) isn't it, Sarah? Because it's true. It's what it's like.
3: Yes, for sure. We we don't know everything now. Perhaps we will know it in time. But thanks so much for joining us and for listening to what you may have thought was a light episode, but we made it meaty for you. We hope you join us next time on Wine Thieves.
0: I'm your co-host, John Sabo.
3: And I'm Sarah D'Amato.
0: See you next time.